This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. The title of my talk is It's Reasonable to Believe in God. There's lots of ways that you can approach this question. Um, and the way I want to approach it, as, as Ozzy, you'd like to be called Ozzy? Ozzy, sorry. Yes. Uh, like o Ozzy was talked about the Thomistic Institute is committed to looking at issues in the Christian intellectual tradition, mostly through the lens of St. Thomas Aquinas. And so I'm going to talk about the reasonableness of belief in God, or the question, is it reasonable to believe in God, through the lens of Aquinas. Uh, and I suspect that, and I don't know how you guys think about this stuff, but I'll tell you a little bit of my own background. I, I grew up uh, in, in Nevada, Las Vegas, and was a kid who gravitated to sort of intellectual discussions about God and religion and philosophy. And I was always concerned and kind of obsessed with the issue of arguments for God's existence. In fact, that's why I became a philosopher. Uh, that's, that's our currency in the economy of philosophy, it's arguments. I am going to talk about some arguments, but I think when it comes to belief in God, for most people, I think for virtually most people, uh, belief in God is not always, a, in fact, it's very rarely a matter of arguments. It isn't, it's almost like the way we think about our relationships with people that could be our spouses, right? We, if, if you woke up every morning and rehearsed the arguments as to why you married somebody, you're not going to stay married. Right? Because it's not just a matter of intellectual assent. It's also a matter of kind of normal, natural inclinations we have. And so... When we talk about faith and reason and the reasonableness of belief in God, I, I, I'm looking at it, I'd like for us to look at it from that point of view, which is the way Aquinas looks at it. And I'll have more to say about Aquinas in a few minutes. Now, there's different approaches that one can take. One approach uh, I like to call is the put your eggs in one basket approach. So, so the put the eggs in one basket approach is looking at belief in God as a matter of arguments to be sure, but also you just have this one great argument you think no one can refute and that's all you offer. Uh, I, or you take the other position. You think that there's one knockdown, drag out argument as to why belief in God is not rational and you sort of stick with that and you don't ever sort of entertain the possibility that beliefs arise in us for a variety of reasons some of which have to do with arguments, some of which don't. So I've actually, a couple, it's been like 20, over 20 years now, I, I, I witnessed a debate on the issue of the rationality of belief in God in which one of the two philosophers literally walked up there and said, I have one argument. <laughs> and that's all he presented. And the other philosopher who took the opposite view had like about a dozen. And it just was as if they weren't talking to each other. Right, so, so the first way is this kind of eggs in one basket approach, present what one believes is the best argument and just leave it at that. I think that has its inadequacies to it. The other is the drink from a fire hose approach, firehouse, fire hose approach. 
And that is, you just present what one believes are several reasonable arguments for God's existence. Uh, you, uh, you know, reel off 15 or 20 or, uh, you know, something like that. Uh, I think that has its advantages. It, it, it shows the kind of intellectual richness and the different avenues by which people explore this question. So a third approach is one that is found um, among a lot of Protestant scholars. It's called the Reformed approach. And it comes from, the, the word reform comes from the word reformation. And it, these, the, the idea here comes out of the thinking of people that are followers of the great Protestant reformer, John Calvin. The most famous uh, defender of this approach is a recently retired professor from the University of Notre Dame named Alvin Plantinga. Has anyone heard of Alvin Plantinga before? So, so Plantinga uh, holds this view that you don't need, that belief in God is rational without evidence, or you don't need evidence to believe in God. Now, it sounds kind of, kind of weird, but what he means by evidence is stuff you can point to that proves something. So like, let's say you're a detective and you wanna see whether a crime was committed, you collect evidence. Right, and so the evidence so you can prove somebody's guilt. But what Plantinga says is there, there, there are other ways of knowing that are not based on evidence. In other words, we don't like, we, we don't infer, there are ways that we know things like directly or immediately that we don't believe because of something else. So right now, I immediately believe that I'm being appeared to by people. But I don't believe that based on evidence. I don't walk into the room and I say, wow, I'm being appeared to by people. I wonder if they're really there. Let's look at the evidence. <laughs> no, it, it's something I immediately believe, right? It's something that strikes me as true immediately. I don't even reflect or think on it. And so the reform thinkers think that the idea that you need evidence for all your beliefs in order to be, ra in order to be rational actually is in some sense incoherent because there's all sorts of things that we believe that seem perfectly reasonable to believe in for which we don't have arguments or evidence. So think about a lot of our moral beliefs. Uh, my belief, or hopefully you share this belief as well, that it's wrong to torture children for fun, <laughs> right? Listen, we all hold this belief. We Hopefully we all hold this belief. And uh, if somebody were to press you and say, why do you believe this? Excuse me? Why do you believe this? And you say, well, it, it just seems to be true, right? And, and, and for most people, you know, it, it's difficult to actually come up with arguments other than I just see that it's wrong, right? So Plantinga says that if we think that we need evidence uh, for all our beliefs in order to be rational, well, guess what? The claim that you need evidence for all your beliefs to be rational, something you believe not based on evidence. In other words, it's a, it's a first principle that you have in order to investigate the world. And so Plantinga says, why can't belief in God be like that? I mean, after all, so a lot of people come to believe as a consequence of some event or first-person experience that kind of triggers it. So think about 
there are conversion stories like this. People that, let's say, go to the Grand Canyon for the first time, and they are so overwhelmed by the majestic beauty, they have a sense of the presence of God, and they believe. Or the person that does something wicked and senses the eyes of God upon him. Right? There's actually a famous movie, uh, a Woody Allen movie. This is before he was known to be a bad guy. <laughs> uh, Woody Allen it called uh, Crimes and Misdemeanors, and it's about a, uh, a uh, ophthalmologist who hires his, uh, who, who he, he hires a hitman to murder, and uh, he, and so he feels this enormous guilt. But over time, the guilt begins to dissipate as his patient, the rabbi, becomes more blind. And the, the, the analogy or the metaphor is that you know initially the eyes of God were looking upon him, but as time went on, they sort of began to vanish a little bit. Uh, so this idea that you, so the reform thinking is that, it, that belief in God can be rational without a person having evidence. And remember, for the reform person, evidence is a term of art. It refers to stuff you point to by, from which you infer other things. So for people like Planiga, if, let's say, you come to believe in God uh, as a consequence of you know, the immediate sense of his presence upon looking at great beauty, that's not evidence. <laughs> that's simply a kind of natural response that all, most, virtually all human beings have had throughout history when they encounter the transcendent in particular things. That's, one, that's a third approach, and it's an approach that has a lot of merit to it, and I think it's actually an approach that probably uh, fits a lot of people's ordinary experience. I had a friend in graduate school that it was like that for him. He was uh, an atheist, and he and I would hang out together, and we would argue all the time. And I would give him these arguments for God's existence, and he would respond to me, and uh, we, we you know, would have go back and forth, but we remained friends, and uh, we had a lot of interest in common. We both were big fans of Bob Dylan, <laughs> that was our, one of our, our, our common uh, affections. Well, about four or five years after I was done with the doctoral program at Fordham, uh, Scott wrote me, he said, uh, I, I believe in God now. And I asked him what argument it was. He said it wasn't an argument. It just kind of, there was a kind of, it struck him. <laughs> he kind of had a kind of mystical experience. And so I, this is, again, again, this is a way that a lot of people come to believe in God, or let's say they come to believe as a consequence of, of let's say, a reflection on their own lives. So that's a third way. And again, it's, it's usually associated with uh, Protestant reform thinkers. But as, as, as we'll see in a few minutes, that I think there's a, there's a parallel to this in, in the ideas of Thomas Aquinas. So that brings us to the fourth uh, approach, and that is to show how faith and reason are complementary, and that God can be known via reason, but need not be in order to, for one to have faith. So for, for, for the, and this is what I call the Catholic perspective. And this is the perspective found in the Catechism of the Catholic Church and the works of Thomas Aquinas. 
And it says that we have these rational faculties, these abilities as, as human beings. And because of these rational faculties, we can know certain things about the universe and its order and nature that, uh, uh, that are true. But we're also, because we're, we're not only rational, we're also animals, as, according to the, the Thomistic understanding of human beings, human beings are rational animals. We have these rational faculties, but we also have passionate emotional aspects to our nature. And for that reason, our reason sometimes gets distorted. And so think, for example, it's a kind of non-theological example, the person who does something in a fit of rage that's wrong. Right? So somebody, let's say, is angry at another person, and they get in a fist fight, and somebody dies. And during that entire time, the person does know that it's wrong to murder. And yet they're sort of overwhelmed by their emotions. This can happen also with other beliefs that we have. Uh, you, I, I've seen this, we've seen this not only uh, in sort of these extreme cases, like the guy that murders somebody, but we can see it in, it, you go back to the stories of the pre-fall um, uh, of the Berlin Wall in Eastern Bloc countries where you had sort of totalitarian Soviet dominance where citizens would assert and assent to things that they actually didn't believe and over time actually think they believed them because their emotions and their passions were in some ways manipulated right, by fear of, of destruction of family and, and well-being and so forth. Uh, so what the, what the Catholic approach acknowledges is that we are rational agents, but we're not purely rational agents. We also are beings that are physical, we're emotional, we can, uh, we can break, right? We're not simply detached minds. And in fact, if you think about it, a, a person who is able to suppress their emotions entirely and think perfectly rational may actually turn out to be quite immoral. So think about, we call them sociopaths, I think. Right? Uh, so, so think about, um, you know, the... We have these, these, these seem to be inclinations that are intention, right? We have um, a, an understanding that we should treat everybody with equal respect and dignity. And yet we also have this inclination that we should treat those closest to us, you know, our spouses, our children, our family, our nation, with maybe greater deference, demanding the, the degree to which they are close to us, Right? So imagine you have this sort of perfectly rational person that has suppressed all his emotional inclinations, and he's uh, and he looks out into the street. And he sees a car going at uh, that that could hit either his child or a stranger, and he evaluates it instantly. He says, "Well, the stranger has greater potential for his life, so I'm going to throw myself in front of the car to save the stranger, but not my child." You would think there's something wrong with him. Right? In fact, we wouldn't blame the parent that actually did extend, did take risks for their child and not to a stranger. We may think it's sad and tragic, but we wouldn't fault them for it, right? So there's a sense in which human beings, as, as a, we have these emotions and they're part of us. And that's why I think that oftentimes people are moved to believe in God, not by strict argument, by appealing to these other inclinations that we have. So there's a distinction that that Aquinas makes, it's really important in this regard. 
And it's the distinction between preambles of faith and articles of faith. This will give me a chance to write this on, use the board. So, articles of faith. Now, your boards are better than ours. I'll tell you that. I don't tell Baylor. Okay, so articles of faith and preambles of faith. So, Aquinas says that there are, and the Catholic Church teaches, that there are certain things that we can know about God and other matters that our natural reason can acquire. So something like that God exists, that human beings have immaterial souls, that there is a natural moral law. Now, those things are never known with completeness, and because of that emotional aspect of human beings, they can be distorted, right? But we have a kind of intuitive, according to this view, that in principle we can know these things. Some of them are easier than others. So think, for example, of uh, the belief uh, that human beings are ordered towards knowledge. That's something that is you don't really think about, right? So I had to give an example of how this works. I had a student, this is about 20 years ago, when I was teaching, over 20 years ago, I was teaching at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Uh, it was my first job. And I had a student ask me if I, why I thought the truth was important. And I answered, do you want the true answer or the false one? See, in other words, the very, very asking the question presupposed an answer, right? In other words, you're seeking, that's the way we're, or that's an easy one, right? It's more difficult when it comes to, as you move away from uh, those things that are just simply the exercise of our intellects, when it comes to, uh, let's say, thinking about whether there's an immaterial soul, there you'd be much more elaborate, detailed arguments. But Aquinas says there are the things that we just can know through our natural reason. And so, again, they include things like that, inner, that a God exists. There's a soul. And, and he actually says, and so forth. Right? The preambles of faith. Oh, excuse me. So those are the preambles. They're called preambles. Not because you have to believe them in order to have faith. Okay, so it isn't as if there is going to be a theology test before you're received into the church if you decide to become Catholic. It's that the faith presupposes those things, whether or not you have an argument for them. So I'll go come back to come to come back to those in, in, in a few minutes. But uh, I'm sorry, I, I messed up. I, I, I put the, <laughs> I've got my thing here. Okay, so, sorry. Oh. You know why I did that? Because preambles of faith should be on top, right? So, I'm sorry. So, preambles of faith are things, uh, that, things that we can know through reason, like God, the existence of the soul, and so forth, okay? Um, the articles of faith 
are those things that we can know only by special revelation. Uh, so things like that, that God is a trinity, that Christ died for your sins, right? and, and that um, basically the Nicene Creed, right? those, well, those aspects of the Nicene Creed about the nature of the church and the nature of the trinity and so forth. You, you couldn't know those things, according to Aquinas, by your natural reason. That God is a trinity, for example. That, that's something that uh, you can only know through special revelation. And in order to assent to the articles of faith, it's not it, just an intellectual thing. It's not a question of, of assenting to a set of arguments. It's actually, according to Aquinas, God's grace moving the will to faith. So in some ways, it's, um, it's like, uh, like if some, uh, oh, well, let me give it, my friend Scott, who I mentioned earlier, uh, when he first came to believe in God, he didn't actually have any religious faith. It was sort of him, for him, just an intellectual matter. It was only later that he had a kind of religious conversion. And so for, for Aquinas, uh, you can, in a sense, um, have a kind of intellectual understanding of what the Trinity is or that Christ died for your sins or, or uh, any, any of other uh, doctrines. But in order to move you to a sense in faith, you can't do that on your own. You have to be moved by God's grace. And this is something that's often misunderstood about the Catholic view. The Catholic view is sometimes depicted as, oh, in order for you to, have, to embrace the articles of faith, you first have to have all these arguments, right? You have to first, like, you know, believe in the, uh, you have to have an argument for God's existence and an argument for the soul. And then you sort of add on to those preambles, the articles of faith. But that's not the Catholic view at all. The Catholic view is that these are just simply two different ways of knowing. <laughs> that is the, it's the, it's the difference between uh, just mere intellectual acknowledgement that something's real versus giving an entire commitment as a person to God. So let me give you an illustration. So let's say there are, oh, I'm going to hear, I'm going to, there's a quote here from Aquinas I have in my notes. Um, in order, I think he explains it well here. Uh, he says, the existence of God and other like truths about God, which can be known by natural reason, are not articles of faith, but are preambles to the article. For faith presupposes natural knowledge, even as grace presupposes nature, and perfection presupposes something that could be perfected. Nevertheless, there is nothing to prevent a man who cannot grasp a proof, accepting as a matter of faith, something which in itself is capable of being scientifically known and demonstrated, unquote. So he's saying here that, yes, you can have these arguments for the preambles of faith, but you need not have them in order to assent to the faith. So an example is, is, is my wife and I. My wife is not a philosopher. 
she is a stained glass artist. And he, I don't think has read anything I've ever written as a philosopher. <laughs> Except for I, I wrote a, a small book about 12 years ago called uh, Return to Rome, which was, a kind of, which was a story of my own return to the Catholic Church. I grew up Catholic, left the church as a teenager, and then returned 15 years ago as, while I was a professor at, at, at Baylor, and I wrote it down. I was at the time president of the Evangelical Theological Society, resigned my post a week after returning to the Catholic Church, and I had several publishers ask me to write it down, so I wrote a little book on my, on my return. And so uh, I dedicate uh, the book to my wife, and so I said, you should read it. <laughs> and she liked the first three chapters, which was all story. The last two were theological. She said, I don't, I don't care about that. <laughs> so, but for her, she, would, she came to the Catholic Church before me, in a sense. So we were living in Southern California in the late 1990s, and we're attending a, uh, an Episcopal church called St. James Episcopal, and the liturgy for the midday Sunday service was very similar to the Novus Ordo service or mass at the Catholic Church. And my wife, who had attended mass with my parents, turned to me during the service and said, why aren't we Catholic? And I said, after, after church, I went and said, well, here's why. You know, they, they're wrong about justification and the Bible and blah, blah, blah. I went through all this sort of typical litany of, of issues that at the time I, I thought the Catholic Church was wrong about, obviously, since I changed my mind. So uh, in 2007, I went to my wife and I said, I, I think I want to return to the Catholic Church. And she said, what took you so long? And immediately called the, a priest who was a friend of ours, and we met with him for several weeks. But she was way ahead of me on this. And for her, it was, it was not a matter of you know, theological arguments for the papacy or uh, the communion of the saints or anything like that. It was, it was just beautiful. And it made sense to her. And she immediately uh, began doing all the Catholic things, right? Doing the rosary, praying to the saints immediately. It was like, it was like it became second nature to her. And so in some ways, even though I know all the arguments, I think her faith is stronger than mine. And so it, it, for her, it wasn't a matter of any of these things uh, in terms of these arg the arguments. It was a matter of just assenting to what grace that God placed in her to move her will. And it was just immediate. And so she frequently tells people, whenever we talk about this, she goes, I want to be joined the church long before he did. <laughs> and, you know, thus shaming me and losing uh, time, uh, again, time in purgatory. <laughs> so, um, so another example. So imagine, imagine there are two people. We'll call them Tony and Tina. Tina uh, is a philosophy professor at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas. Tony is an Uber driver in Las Vegas. Tina has taught philosophy for years, and she comes to believe in the existence of God because she has studied the arguments for God's existence offered by Moses Maimonides, the great Jewish philosopher, Avicenna, the great Muslim philosopher, and Thomas Aquinas. She comes to the conclusion, yes, there is a self-existent, 
eternal, everlasting, simple being on which the entire universe depends. She comes to this deep philosophical conclusion, and yet, so she accepts one of the preambles of faith, but she hasn't assented to any of the articles of faith. Tony, on the other hand, not a philosopher, he's from New York, <laughs> that's why I was born in Brooklyn, born in Brooklyn, and he uh, drives drives an Uber, and he, you know, is, let's say, is, um, you know, talks to his clients and their passengers and asks that, you know, they have discussions, and one time he's asked, do you believe in God? He goes, sure, I believe in God. Well, why, why, why do you believe in God? I don't know. I always believe in God. So he, in a sense, is like Tina. He has, he believes a preamble of faith, but he doesn't quite have, he has an sense of the articles of faith. Well, supposing... Tony and Tina go on to, let's say one of the passengers in, in Tony's Uber, you know, is a Catholic priest, and he says, well, have you ever read, um, you know, Scott Hall, or, you know, yeah. something like that, and he reads him, and he, he says, you know, I think I'm going to go back to the faith of my youth, I was brought up in a Catholic home and left, and so he returns, he starts going to RCIA, and guess who he meets at RCIA? Tina. Tina herself uh, was had no religious faith, uh, but then begins reading more of Aquinas and gets online and sees uh, Aquinas 101 <laughs> and watches all these videos by these great Dominicans and concludes, you know, I think I have to become Catholic. And so Tony and Tina meet in RCIA, and they're both they both moved by God's grace to assent to the Articles of Faith, but they arrive there with the preambles of faith. Tina, through reason, through hard reason, right? She goes through the argument. She's read them all. Tony just believes, right? But he still doesn't have faith yet. He's a, but it takes the movement of God's grace. So I think that's what Aquinas is trying to get at here. Uh, that 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 there are, that how you as, how you come to the faith it can occur in a variety of different ways, but. Why you believe the preambles of faith uh, could differ as well, right? For even Aquinas says, for most people who come to accept the Catholic faith, it's really they don't have the arguments, right? There's first off, there's not enough time in the, in a day, uh, days in a week, weeks in a month, months in a year, years in a lifetime, right, to study all the arguments. In fact, Aquinas says, if in fact accepting the articles of faith depended on people having good arguments for all the preambles of faith, nobody would have faith, or very few people would have faith, right? So there's, there's more to this than just simply, simply arguments. Now, and there's another reason why Aquinas holds this, uh, holds this view. Uh, some of you may have heard of something called the Pelagian heresy. How many of you have heard of the Pelagian heresy? Pelagius. Pelagius was an, uh, yes, uh, get extra credit for that. He uh, was an English monk who, um, uh, who denied that you needed the grace of God in order to come to faith. Right? That you could sort of do it on your own. Right? 
So in fact, there's a famous um, uh, regional council of the, of the, called the Council of Orange, uh, which is the sixth, fifth century, I think sixth century, uh, maybe fifth century. Uh, and it is a response to, it's a condemnation of Pelagius and uh, semi-Pelagianism. There wasn't somebody called semi-Pelagius. It's just <laughs> called, uh, uh, it's called that because people kind of wanted the halfway house between Pelagianism and, and Catholicism. But, um, but one of the things that the Council of Orange says in its canons is that, is that you cannot come to faith without God's grace. And so what Aquinas is wanting to resist here is the idea that you need to sort of figure, have a reason or have a, an argument in order to assent to this. Because if that were the case, if in fact your assent to the articles of faith depended on you having an argument, that would mean the grace of, that God's grace was not sufficient. Right? So that's what, one reason. Now, uh, how grace and free will work out together is another sort of mysterious. Uh, and the other thing that Aquinas um, or the Catholic, the Catholics in general, Catholic Church in general is concerned about is that reason can't mean you can't believe anything without evidence or argument. It can't mean that because you'd never be able to do anything, right? So think about all the beliefs that you hold right now about a variety of matters for which you have never thought about having arguments for. In fact, it's almost, try to unbelieve something. You know, it's very difficult, right? Your beliefs are kind of not entirely under your control. I mean, they partially are. I mean, you can sort of convince yourself of something, but it takes time, right? So, so the, the concern, the, the chief concern that Aquinas has for thinking of the preambles of faith being necessary in order for, or, or, or that one has to sort of figure it out by reason in order to assent to the article of faith is, the, is that it means that, that grace is not sufficient. Okay, so, I'm looking at the time. Okay, um, got about maybe, let's talk for maybe another 10, 15 minutes or so and then open the floor for, for questions. So, um, so we talk about, I want to talk a little bit about arguments now. Uh, but before that, I want to give you the, the, the Catholic understanding of who God is. And here, what I'm going to do is simply describe what a divine nature is. That is, what does it mean for God to be God? And this is often misunderstood today because there is a sense in which we oftentimes, at least since the mid-19th century, there's a kind of tendency to anthropomorphize the divine nature, to think of God as just like a, a person without a body who's really powerful. And so you get some of these, I think, problems that people have with the way in which God is spoken of, especially in relation to like the hard sciences, so you find um, you know, some. I have friends who hold these views. I, I don't think they're right about them, but they are. They, they treat, uh, let's say, the absence of 
a scientific account for something as evidence that God acted. And that treats God as a rival to his creation. In other words, God needs space to act. So the, the example that, 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 that I'll use here is, the, is what is sometimes called the intelligent design movement. So I have friends who are in this and who are defended and I have great respect for. I think, that they're, I think that they're mistaken in the way they think about how God acts. So for the intelligent design advocates, uh, the typical kind of argument is um, if, that if you look at nature, it's either something is the result of a scientific law or it's the result of chance. If you can exclude both and what uh, survives has a kind of very high level of complexity, we're justified in inferring some sort of great intellect as the cause of this. So you get these, you know, like uh, Michael Behe at Lehigh University arguing that if uh, there's a, 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 a aspects to living organisms that seem to uh, exhibit what he calls irreducible complexity and Darwinian accounts can't make sense of it, so therefore there must be some sort of a designer. Here's the problem from a Thomistic point of view, is that for the Thomist, for the Catholic, I think for the classical Christian, God also created the chance of law. Yeah, and the idea that, that you need space in nature for God to act actually reduce, uh, diminishes our understanding of God's omnipotence. So an illustration that, that, that I've used for, for Christians that, 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 that may be uneasy with this criticism is think about the way Christians think of the inspiration of Scripture. So when we think about the inspiration of Scripture, we think that we say the Bible is God's word, but we also say that Paul wrote Romans. So we don't think that um, Paul needs to stop writing so God can write. <laughs> and so in the same way, nature is effective in its own existence without needing God's intervention, although he is ultimately the first cause of all that exists. And so if you can accept that when it comes to Scripture, why not accept that when it comes to the natural world? Or even that when it, you can also apply this to the issue of coming to faith, right? So the idea that when grace acts on us and we make an ascent to faith, there's a kind of mystery here. The Catholic Catechism says, even though God's grace allows our will to ascent to the articles of faith, ultimately God gets all the credit. So you think that's kind of weird. How is that possible? Well, we accept that when it comes to Scripture. So Paul wrote Romans, but God gets all the credit. Right? And it doesn't, so it's 100%, 100%, not 50-50. Or 100-0-0-100. So um, it's a little bit of a, of a tangent, but it's, it, it, it's a kind of one of you know, what you're trying to express the, the depth of the Catholic view. So God is not simply a thing in the universe that we employ to explain stuff that otherwise can't be explained. He is the ground of all existence, the first cause. Not first in chronological order, although he is that, but he's first in 
being. Right? So the existence of everything ultimately depends on God, even if the universe had always existed. And that God is, in a sense, incomprehensible. The, the things that we can know about God, Aquinas says, virtually all of them are negative. He's infinite. That is, he's not finite. Right? Um, he is uh, omnipotent. Right? Well, it just means all knowledge. Right? So there's a, there's a sense in which, or the, the absence of ignorance. Right? So there's a sense in which we can know some things about God, but not much from our natural reason. Everything else we know from uh, that, that God is love, for example, is something that we can only know through divine revelation, from those things that are uh, with the articles of faith. So St. Anselm, um, in a very pithy way, refers to God as that than which no greater can be conceived. Uh, and that's kind of really heavy. I remember the first time I heard that. I was an undergraduate at the University of Nevada, and my professor, uh, Cyril Pastor, uh, he was like right out of central casting. He was one of these uh, 19, early 1980s European philosophers who dressed like uh, he was from Spain, and he just had this way about him, and he would come in with a cigarette. He had professors who smoked in those days. <laughs> Can you believe it? Uh, and he, he, I remember the first time, he, and I was, I did not have any idea what he meant. But what, what Anselm is saying is that, you know, God is sort of beyond us. He's not something you can domesticate or even fully understand and grasp. And when I was younger, I kind of resisted that view, thinking that that made theism irrational, but as I've gotten older, I, I, I've come to the conclusion that, that I don't want to worship a God that I can understand. I mean, there's something almost, you know, straight odd about that, right? Um, uh, so, so God is not an hy a hypothesis to account for what science can account for. Um, again, he's just not another thing in the universe. He is the ground of being. He is, to use Anselm's language, that and that which no greater can be conceived. There's a lot of things that, 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 that uh, follow from that, right? So if God exists, he's this immaterial, unchanging being, and he's, but he's not really a being. He is the ground of being. So it isn't like that God is like, like one of a kind. He's not a kind. He is the creator of all kinds. So if, let's say, the entire world were destroyed, you were the only one left, you'd be one of a kind, right? But you would not be like God because you would be, you would have, you would be part of a genus, right, and a species, right? But according to the classical Christian Catholic view, God is beyond that. He is the ground of all, he's the source of all the kinds and natures and so forth. So that follows from it. It also means that there are, immaterial realities that we can know. And so if God is immaterial, and he's an eternal, in a sense, an eternal mind, that means, in a sense, the ideas that we have in our minds kind of participate with his. And think about how mysterious ideas are. I mean, it's kind of mind-boggling. I guess that's almost an inadvertent pun, isn't it? Uh, yeah. So ideas... You think about something like um, when you look out into the world and you see human beings. 
you look at this room and you see other human beings, and you you immediately have you know an awareness of all these human beings, but you also make a judgment about other human beings based on something you know about human nature. But what is human nature? It's like our essence, right? It's what we are, and yet you, you kind of know it, but it's not, it, it's in a sense, a, supposing there are four people in the room, you'd know a fifth thing. You'd know human nature. Whereas other creatures don't have that capacity, right? So your dog, if you have a dog, can distinguish you from your neighbor, but it doesn't know you're both human. Right? So that's something that's, that's it's really fascinating. And it's something that animated people like Aquinas, that we can know universal truths about physical things. Right? So you see all these particular things in the room, but yet you kind of have an ability to abstract from those things universal knowledge. And that's what makes, and, and that, those, those mysterious things about human beings is what, what leads people like Aquinas and other thinkers especially in the Middle Ages, to conclude that there's something divine about human beings that we have, that we're made in the image of God, the kind of language that, that we're more accustomed to today. All right, so let me just talk about, I've got a few minutes left, so I'm going to just briefly uh, tell you about uh, a few arguments that, that I find persuasive for God's existence, or at least support theism. So one argument, um, and I'm not going to go into them in great detail, one argument is, is a kind of argument from reason, um, and it's one offered by um, different variations on this argument. Uh, the, the version I'm going to just present to you briefly is an argument, it's sometimes called an argument from abstract objects, and I've kind of alluded to it already. So it, it begins with a question. So what is ultimate, mind or matter? So let's first consider something called necessary truths. What are necessary truths? Well, things like, um, uh, let's say, uh, uh, the proposition that the circumference of a circle is equal to twice its radius multiplied by pi. That's a necessary truth, or two plus two equals four here in Tamori. Simple example. <laughs> so, now what's true about that proposition? Um, what's true about the proposition 2 pi uh, radius? Um, it doesn't depend on the material world. For material things are subject to this law. They don't create it. The circular cross-section of a tree trunk does not cause it to be the case that the circumference of any circle will equal 2 pi radius. So necessary truths are independent of the material objects that they govern. In fact, none of you have ever seen a triangle. You thought about that before? What? You've never seen it. So what you've seen is an imperfect, as close to possible, physical instantiation of a triangle, but the, a triangle in terms of a mathematical equation or a mathematical description you have never actually seen. What? <laughs> Is that like Plato? Yes, yes. Now you've seen, I could draw one, it's a crappy triangle. Oh, an ideal triangle. So, uh, but it's incomplete, right? So the perfect triangle, technically, I mean, I'm sure somebody's probably done something on a computer 
But the point is that even if you destroyed all the physical instantiations of it, you'd still have the concept. And yet, the physical instantiation of it isn't what gives it its truth. In other words, you don't believe in triangles because you, you, you saw a physical triangle, right? If they were all erased, you still have the concept. So it doesn't depend on. So that if you are, let's say, um, if there had been never been a material universe, it would have been, it, it still would have been true that the circumference of any possible circle will equal twice its own radius multiplied by pi. But if a necessary truth does not depend on the material universe, where is it if the material universe does not exist? It has to be in the only environment in which abstract objects can exist, and that's a mind. So there has to be at least one mind that has always existed in which all abstract objects reside. Right. So um, one, other, one other argument that I find, and this, again, it's not going to give great detail, there's an argument uh, that a, quite, a kind of variation, uh, actually an argument that Aquinas uh, employs, not in the, in the, in the Summa uh, Theologica, but in a, uh, a smaller volume called On Being in Essence, and it's called the Existential Argument, or an Existential Proof, and it, it goes something like this. So if you're, if it, there, everything that we observe in the, in the universe is a kind of combination of essence and existence. So you can imagine, for example, knowing the essence of something, like a saber-toothed tiger, but there's not one that exists, right? So for something to come into existence, or in other words, for an essence to be actualized, let's say uh, we have some mad scientists that get the DNA of a saber-toothed tiger and in a laboratory clone one, right? like in um, Jurassic Park. Right. What would we call saber-toothed tigers instead of um, uh, dinosaurs? It called something like um, uh, Kitty Park, or I don't know what you call it. So, in any event, supposing um, you know somebody were to do that, right? So, but in order to to sort of get the essence of a saber-toothed tiger actualized in a real physical thing, you need a cause for that. Uh, so, every, but everything that we know of is uh, doesn't exist essentially. So, the, none of us, we all exist. We're here, right? But none of us exist by nature. We need something else to either keep us in existence or to or to bring us into existence. Now, you can't have an infinite regress of causes like that. So, there has to be at least one thing whose essence it is to exist. So none of us, it's our essence to exist, right? Because we're contingent, we came into existence, and we will, at some point, at least go out of our mortal existence. So the most controversial premise in this argument is the, is the infinite regress part. And that uh, here, I, 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 and I'm just going to conclude with this. This is an example that was given by my, in order to explain why you can't have an infinite regress of present causes, is my, my, my colleague, my, my former colleague, John Halding. He taught for a number of years at Baylor, and now he's back in, in Scotland, although we have him as, his title with us is like distinguished visiting uh, professor, so he, but he still lives in Scotland, and he's, on, he's chairing several dissertation committees in our department still. So John, in, in, in a book that he uh, 
that he wrote with J.J. Uh, uh, Smart, is a debate on, on existence of God. He's, he tells this story. He says, the university decided to start a progress review system for the faculty and staff. The terms of the review stated that the reviews of colleagues who have not been reviewed previously but are to act as reviewers will also have to be arranged so that all reviewers can be reviewed before they review others. In this setup, the causal power of being a reviewer is derivative. So if you're a reviewer, uh, you can only be a reviewer if you've been reviewed. Okay? Uh, it, is wholly, it is wholly derivative as each person's status as a reviewer depends not only on being reviewed by someone, but also on that person being a reviewed reviewer who has been reviewed by a reviewed reviewer, and so on infinitum. If, however, there is no first unreviewed reviewer, then there is no one with the right causal power to get the series started. The problem remains, even if the reviewing process had been in place since the university's founding, and even if the university had always existed, you cannot give what you do not have. If no one is a reviewer in her own right, then no one could become a reviewed reviewer since there would not be anyone with the requisite status to review so as to make a reviewed reviewer. <laughs> no one would rightly claim to be a reviewed reviewer unless there was a first non-derivative reviewing cause. Reviewing cause. In the end, the university realized the impossibility and set up and designated one of the senior administrators as the unreviewed reviewer. <laughs> so that's a nice little illustration of what, because when you think of like the universe, I mean, there's just so much stuff, right? But that gives you a kind of finite example. So that's it. Uh, I'll open the floor for any questions you may have. And I think we have maybe, what, 15 minutes or so for questions? Um, so. Okay. Go ahead. Do you have any questions for the person? Yes, gentleman in the back. I, I have a question. I'm not sure where it's going to go, but maybe I'll hit on something that you can address. On the book side. So, first off, uh, thank you, Professor Beckwith. That was, oh. a, was a great presentation. Um, uh, some of us cool. in the doctoral program here at UNT, um, in the Department of Philosophy and Religion, are currently covering the Summa Theologia. And I Oh, cool. Course. And then given this... So are you a doctoral student? Yes, I am. Oh, cool. Uh, and given that and the uh, recent feast day at St. Thomas, it's been a lovely coincidence. Uh, yeah. Truly, it's really awesome. It's very, very encouraging for me. Yeah. Not a big focus on metaphysics in the department, so, you know, yeah. feel a little alone. Uh, <laughs> I have maybe more of a comment than a question. Okay, things. sure. But it concerns... Uh, the recent resurgence in, in Bonaventure scholarship. Um, oh, you say Bonaventure? Bonaventure, yeah. I'm not, I'm not a, okay. I'm not, it's totally outside of my can. I was sort of dreading that. Uh, <laughs> but you hit on some themes that I think Bonaventure would maybe disagree with about um, say classical Thomistic uh, um, philosophy and theology. Oh, I know a lot of those Franciscans. Uh, yeah, they're, well, they're, I, they're, they're trouble. I am one, so. so. <laughs> but I love them. I, my name is Francis. I, I, I noticed that as well. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, you may not be aware of this. Uh, you know, Bonaventure is kind of invariant a little bit, but the church holds him in uh, as co-primary with Thomas. Um, and Bonaventure did not agree with Thomas on quite a few things. Well, I know that the, the impossibility of didn't regress. I don't know if you know. Well, he 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 didn't. I mean, he he did, Aquinas believed that. 
that the unit that that you could not prove philosophically that the universe had a beginning. Whereas Bonaventure, I knew, I know, did you believe that? Um, yes, but uh, Bonaventure also is critical of the idea of creation. Yeah, there are a lot of theorites here. It's, it's, it's pretty complicated. Um, but, uh, you know, so we have Neo-Thomism coming out of the 19th century, which is after Rahner and the focus on transcendental unity and so on. Yeah. Well, the Neo-Bonaventurian uh, model is, is working with that, but supplying the kind of social model of the Trinity that seems, in, in a lot of ways, to, to fit or conform more with the spirit of the age that we're in or with the kind of church's progression. Yeah. Um, and um, this, I'm still working through this, but the idea seems to be for Bonaventure that you have God as first first cause, right? Um, but that, it, that you have some some uh, primo primo materia, some prime matter that we call nature, um, and that the nature isn't somehow self subsistent and it does something, but it, it depends upon God for that. But the point seems to be that that transcendental unity, the thing that kind of unites creatures, is in nature and the capacity of God having acted upon it. And I wonder what Thomas would maybe say about this. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It's a it's a good I wish my colleague Tom Ward were here. One of my uh, one of my colleagues at Baylor, Tom Ward, he's also Catholic. He's a Don Scotus scholar. So he know he knows that that sort of that Franciscan literature uh, much better than I do. It, it, it so. seems it seems like um uh, Bonaventure didn't make this distinction but Scotus did with me. The order of being and the order of time, and use that to affirm the immaculate conception. Yeah. I wonder if we can speak of like this prime matter as the immaculate conception, or, or, or the pure potentiality of it, or something. And I, I'm, I'm digging into this for my research, yeah. and I, I just maybe yeah, you can I, speak I, to it. I, I, I wish I could help you. I don't. It's just not outside of my my specialty. I mean, the fact. I mean, as you know, Aquinas rejected the idea that that there is anything like. I mean, he did believe that there was. Prime matter, but ultimately it wasn't in any way like the way that, for example, Aristotle thought about it. That it was a, that God is the ultimate creator. Uh, so, sorry. Thank you. But yeah. again, thank you for the presentation. Oh, it was, it was in, that was very informative. Thank um, you. All right. Any other? Yes, sir. Do you know Dr. J. Warner Wallace? Or J. Warner Wallace. I I actually know. Uh, he, I, I know his work on, um, he's a former detective, LAPD guy, yeah, yeah. yeah, he's done a lot of work on, on, um, employing kind of, um, legal rules of evidence to the resurrection of Jesus and questions like that. Yeah. I, I, am familiar with him. I, I, I know him. I, we've actually, I, I, for years, I used to be a lecturer at Summit Ministries, which is an evangelical summer camp for kids, and he... I would see him and talk to him. I've not read a lot of his work, but I'm very familiar with him. Yeah, I was like, yeah, that's not a lie. So yeah, he's a yeah, he's a one of these uh, these guys that you know really gifted as a um, you know as a guy evaluating evidence, you know, but more in a practical sense. Yeah. Um, so. And how about Kent Diesel? Who? Kent Diesel. I don't know who that is. Yeah, so I have a question about the relationship between the preambles and the articles of faith. Sure. So you um, you demonstrated ways through which one could come to assent to the articles of faith by first coming to reason to the preambles of faith. 
is there a way that it could go the other way, whereby one sees the reasonableness of articles of faith and comes to the preamble? Yes, it, it, there is a way, but, but and, and for Aquinas, uh, those uh, there's a there's a way of thinking about arguments uh, and evidence that that we have today that 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 folks back then didn't think of. So for Aquinas. Uh, he, when he thinks of an argument being rational, he thinks of it as like decisive. Like, like you have premises and the conclusion follows deductively from the premises. But he does also believe that there are things uh, that we can speculate about or have arguments and reasons for that don't count as, as, rash, as rational arguments in that sense. And so he does talk about things like miracle claims uh, that, that that miracles are a sign of God's intervention, but he but he does warn that that you he says look people at the time of Christ saw the same miracles they didn't believe so be careful that that uh, that you that you don't subject yourself to ridicule by uh, thinking that those arguments are kind of decisive in, in, for people. But he lived in a different time. Today we have a, a much at least among philosophers and and a much different view of the way in which uh, we look at arguments and evidence. And so the model of the hard sciences uh, has a big influence. So we, we think, for example, you'll have philosophers like Richard Swinburne or William Lane Craig talk about this argument shows that God is likely or highly probable. That kind of language Aquinas does not use because that's, he doesn't think those, uh, that's part of uh, you know, the divine science. So, yes, yeah, so, so it's, it, it'd be perfectly okay if, let's say, um, so, uh, another aspect of, of Aquinas is thinking in this regard, I don't know if this is what you're driving at. Uh, so, supposing somebody says, I don't understand that the Trinity just seems incomprehensible to me, and you give the person um, reasons to believe that the Trinity isn't irrational, but you're not proving it's real. You're just, you're just trying to get, help them get over the conceptual issue. Aquinas says that's a perfectly legitimate way to reason about the preambles or the articles of faith. Uh, so if you want to explain something like the incarnation, so supposing you say, well, it seems weird that you have um, a, a historical person who is both divine and, and human, both a creator and creature. How is that possible? Now, our knowledge of that comes from divine revelation, but figuring out how to make sense of that conceptually, reason can be very helpful. So that's another, I don't know if that's what, what you were getting at, but. That is a, yeah. that's a great. Yeah, so that's, Aquinas says, yeah, that's a perfectly legitimate way uh, that reason can be employed in theological uh, discussion. Yes? Um, so can the, you might, uh, oh, sorry. Um, you said something earlier about the preambles of faith, and I just wanted a clarification on it. Uh, and I might, you may not have said this at all, so I'm just asking. Sure. Uh, can you can, are the preambles of faith able to be known as truth um, just by existing and having like the human experience? Or was that something that was said? Yeah. So it's, it's I, I kind of alluded to it with the uh, the, the Tina and Tony example. So. In that sense, so technically Aquinas would say that someone who assents to the, like Tony, assents to the preamble of faith does have an argument. Uh, he doesn't really know it, like, like, he, like he would know the, 
like, you know, you said something like, all bachelors are unmarried, unmarried, Al Gore is unmarried, therefore Al Gore is a bachelor, you'd know that immediately. So there are some people that Aquinas says, yeah, once they know the premises for an argument for God's existence, they know the conclusion in that sense of knowledge. But one could, in a sense, um, believe that God exists without knowing it and still not have faith. Yes? So the preambles are more axiomatic? Not really. Not axiomatic in the sense that you postulate them. If that's what you mean by, like, I think of an axiom. That's what I meant, but that's not the case. You know, they're, they're more like, uh, they could, they, they are just, uh, they could be the deliverances of reason, or they could be just things that you believe because you were taught it, and you have to actually, in a sense, so if somebody, like, say, said, uh, I'll give this example. So let's say uh, Paul, if somebody, most of you are familiar with Paul, St. Paul's preaching on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. He's up there and he says, you know, I was walking around your city, Athens, and I saw this temple uh, to an unknown God. I'll tell you who the unknown God is. He is he in whom we live and have our being. So he gives this sort of, he gives the preamble of faith, right? He says, there's this, there's this foundation of all existence, and it's God. And he doesn't really give it an argument. He just asserts it. He goes, and I'll tell you how he revealed himself in history, and he tells the story of Christ real quickly, right? So there you kind of have, in a nutshell, the preambles of faith and the articles of faith in one preaching, but he's not giving an argument, right? So suppose there are people in the audience who say, yeah, he's right. Then they come to believe the uh, preamble of faith, but they may never come to ascend the articles of faith. Yes? What is uh, Aquinas' explanation of the movement of grace in helping someone he doesn't try I mean he just it happens I mean God has got his own will and we, it's inscrutable I mean so there is this mystery part but at the same time we don't know what role we play in the divine plan and so it's uh, it's it, it I think the beauty of Aquinas's view is that uh, it on the one hand, has his very, very strong view of divine providence. On the other, he also has a very strong view of human freedom. And how he reconciles it is ultimately appealing to God's omnipotence, that God is powerful enough to have providence and an eternal plan, but at the same time, human beings are able to exercise their freedom. And it's, it is something that... Um, uh, you know, if, if you, let's say, this gets into some debates among philosophers about something called the free will defense for the problem of evil, uh, there are, if, if you believe that God could not have created a universe where people act freely and don't sin, then uh, Aquinas would say you're actually de denying God's omnipotence. Whereas there are a lot of philosophers who say that, that, uh, that, it is, it, that in some possible, that there's no possible world in which God could have created free creatures who didn't sin. And Aquinas would say, no, it, God could have done that. He just chose to do it this way, and why he did it, I don't know. <laughs> so, follow-up yeah. question to that. So, if, if, is it enough to take, so if you arrive at one of the preambles of faith as, through human experience, um, is it enough to take, is could you take that as truth then 
because you happen to arrive at a correct conclusion. Yes. But I would I would probably posit that you could arrive at an infinitely more incorrect conclusions just by existing as well, and that maybe evidence would have to play a part in deciding which ones are actual truths and which ones aren't. Yeah, ultimately, yeah. I mean, if somebody, let's say, challenges your belief, and um, it's, it's not an unwise thing to, to try to come up with evidence or arguments, right? But I'm not sure you necessarily need it. In order to be in order to be rational, but to, right. Okay. So that was a, rational. Yes. Well, thanks a lot, Professor, yeah. for having this talk. It was yeah. a really edifying talk. Um, toward the, I guess, the second half of your talk, you referenced one of the earlier parts of Saint Anselm's ontological argument. Yes. Could you speak to the plausibility of using that alongside um, yeah. these types of arguments? Because usually, yeah. So like yeah, Aquinas didn't like the ontological argument, and. Um, I, I don't know what to think about it. So the ontological argument essentially, in a nutshell, <laughs> just a, this is the argument I was bewildered by when I, when I, when I first heard uh, Anselm's description of, of God and then the, the ontological argument. I remember the, t the moment I got it, I was at a Dairy Queen in the strip, and I thought, oh, I understand it, because it took me a while. To, uh, so yeah, so the ontological argument is that, okay, so, God is then that which no greater could be conceived. And, and Anselm is actually praying. So this is a prayer. So he says, God is that, that, that God is that then which no greater could be conceived. Ah, but if God didn't exist, I could conceive that there, 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 there has to be something greater that does exist. So God must exist. <laughs> Okay, so another one, I'll, I'll give you the, there's another version of it called the modal version, which is a, a version offered by contemporary analytic philosophers. Say, there's a, um, uh, an infinite number of possible worlds that could have existed. Um, if God exists in one possible world, he must exist in all possible worlds, including the actual world, because God is the greatest possible being. And the greatest possible being, by definition, exists in every possible world. Yeah. <laughs> so if you just think about, so think about there are, let's say, only three possible worlds. Okay, God exists in one of them. Okay, uh, this is the actual world. Okay, so he exists in one of them, but he's he is the greatest possible being, which means he must exist in all three. Yeah. It's, you know, it's weird. It's our, I find this argument, like, I don't know what, I like it. It's, I, I think, for those who have studied philosophy, I, I, can, I, I think I'm a closet Platonist. That is somebody that, like, I like these kind of conceptual abstract arguments. I think there's just something, you know, I don't know. They just seem, just, they warm my soul. I guess there's no other way to put it. But uh, did you want to follow up? Yeah. Yeah, see, see I, I think you can. I mean, I think for Aquinas, this is Aquinas' problem with the ontological argument. He doesn't think you can know God's essence. And so uh, Anselm seems to be saying that we can know the essence of God. So in the sense, what Aquinas is saying is that once you see God face to face in the afterlife, then you'll believe the ontological argument. Because <laughs> then you go, oh, of course! You know, so it's a... So thank you. I know we're, we're out of time, but... Uh, 
Enjoyed the questions. Thank you for having me.